This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars— then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Mother's Day is coming, and if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with Drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, bar, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, my friends? Okay, I'm just getting over being sick, so if I sound a little weird in this intro, I'm sorry, but wow. Okay, I just interviewed Bart Ehrman. Yes, that's right. The legend himself, Bart Ehrman. He wrote a new book called Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. Bart is a prolific scholar. He's a historian. He has written a lot of books. He still teaches. He's no longer a Christian, but he's still obsessed with the Christian tradition. And he explains why in this interview. I got to say, it was just an honor and privilege to have Bart on the podcast. I think you'll learn so much about the book of Revelation and what it's really trying to say, and also more about why Bart does the work that he does, and also some of his humanitarian work as well, which I thought was really fascinating. So Bart, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for, so much for coming on. It meant, the, uh, it meant the world to have you on the podcast. Friends, if you like this episode, 
Can you do me a favor? Can you rate this podcast? Can you share the episode with a friend? It helps us get the word out. And if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people. And we're able to do this work paywall free because people like yourself donate. You can click on the link in our show notes. All donations in the US are tax deductible. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my episode with Bart Ehrman. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all next time. All right. Well, Dr. Bart Ehrman, I got to say, this is um, I, I'm honored to have you on the podcast. When, when your publisher reached out to me, I responded to them in all caps. Yes, I would love to have Bart on the podcast. So <laughs> it really is great to have you. I, I appreciate you making time and coming on. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> well, the name of our of our organization is the New Evangelicals. I believe from my understanding, you grew up in, in, in evangelical spaces. Is that is that correct? I was an old evangelical. <laughs> I, I, I actually didn't grow up in uh, evangelical circles. I, I grew up in the Episcopal uh, Church mm. until I was uh, 15. And then I had a, uh, a born-again experience through a, a Campus Life Youth for Christ club. And from that point on, uh, for years, I, was a, I definitely was an evangelical. Well, I'm really curious. I mean, what... I, I would love to know because I, I obviously I see a lot of your work. I watch a lot of your debates. I've read a lot of your books, but I'm kind of curious on like a personal side. What, what, what was your journey going from this born again, you know, evangelical experience to now doing the work that you do really outside of, out of the faith completely? Yeah. Well, it was a long journey and mm. uh, it, it wasn't easy for me uh, emotionally. Yeah. Um, but I had, uh, after high school, I went to Moody Bible Institute. And so I was, I was pretty hardcore and uh, <laughs> a complete inerrantist. And um, I, uh, I took Greek when I did, finished my degree at Wheaton and was pretty good at Greek. And I thought, well, okay, I, wanted, I want to study Greek manuscripts. <laughs> and so yeah. the, the world expert at the time was Bruce Metzger, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, he wasn't evangelical, but he would. A lot of evangelicals really adored him. He was a very, he was a, a, a fairly conservative uh, Christian Presbyterian. Uh, but um, you know, I went to Princeton Seminary knowing that it would be far more liberal than anything I had dealt with, and I was all braced for it. <laughs> I had my barriers set up. I was ready to fight. And <laughs> after about after about three years, um, you know, I, I was I was studying the New Testament pretty intensely in Greek, and I learned Hebrew, and I was studying the Old Testament in Hebrew, and I was learning a lot about church history and the development of doctrine and all and all sorts of things. And I finally just got to a point where I started realizing the Bible really does have mistakes in it. Uh, there are mm. contradictions in it, and once I once I said that, it opened me up to the possibility of other ways of looking at the Bible and at uh, and at Christianity. Uh, and so I, I basically I became a I became kind of a more kind of left wing uh, evangelical for a long time, yeah. um, kind of a Wittenberg door kind of uh, evangelical, if you know know what that is. <laughs> and uh, then I um, eventually um, I moved into a, a far more liberal form of Christianity uh, for probably 10 or 15 years. And then, God, I don't know, 30 years ago or something, I just left the faith altogether. Uh, I just decided I didn't believe anymore. 
Yeah, and so for you, you kind of had this journey of kind of going from, I mean, I grew up very much in, the, in like John MacArthur circles. I grew up very much in the reformed, you know, community my whole life. I was homeschooled the whole nine. I would see myself now in more liberal, progressive, you know, Christian Christian spaces. But for you, what was the, maybe the, the, the thoughts, plural or singular, that, 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 that made you go, you know what? I just don't think that like this Christian thing at all is for me anymore, even though you were so devoted to it at one point in your life. Yeah. Well, it was very, very difficult. And yeah. it was less about Christianity uh, per se than about God. Um, I got to a point where um, I just didn't believe that there was a divine power in the world that was controlling things, that was in charge. Um, I was especially taken by uh, how much pain and misery there is in the world, how much suffering. And I, I had taught a class on it at Rutgers on, on what the biblical views of suffering were. And I, I read, you know, I read what the Bible scholars all said. And, and of course, I knew the Bible well already. And I, and I read what the theologians said. And I read what the philosophers said. You know, I read, I read a lot about theodicy, yeah. the issue about why there's suffering. And I, you know, of course, I knew all the answers and I had had answers myself. And I just came to a point where I just said, you know, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe yeah. it. I don't believe there's a God who's active in the world, who answers prayer, who intervenes in any sense. Uh, and so I just, um, I decided I didn't believe in God anymore. And that, that kind of, uh, put a kabush on the, uh, Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. So, so I got to ask then, but you still do this work. I mean, you, you, your most recent book is Armageddon, a book about revelation. You've written, uh, all kinds of works, you know, that, that would apply to, I guess, the Christian tradition in so many ways. Why, why do you still do this work? Do you just love this work so much despite any of the religious overtones? Uh, I absolutely do. I mean, I love the Bible. I love uh, I love the Christian tradition. I'm just completely entranced by it. Mm-hmm. I consider myself to be a follower of Jesus on on some level, on the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, one main thing is that I think that there's so much misinformation about the Bible and Jesus and Christianity in a world where two billion people believe in Him, and it seems yeah. to me that it's useful. For people to get correct information about what they believe in, <laughs> there's a novel idea, and so I really, you know, I'm not interested in uh, deconverting people away from Christianity at all. Yeah. Um, most of my students are Christian, and I try to encourage them in their Christian faith. But I think that it's far, far, far better to be a uh, an informed uh, Christian than an ignorant. Christian. And the, yeah. you know, if you don't have the knowledge, then you're ignorant. And, you yeah. know, and it's not just Christianity. I think the same thing about Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and everything else that, that you should be an informed person rather than hiding your head in the sand, uh, only with respect to religion. You know, you know, you have a lot of people out there who are really smart, you know, it's all, all sorts of things and are very competent and, and the way their mind works, works in one way, except when they get to religion. <laughs> Yeah. All of a sudden, I just throw it all out. I said, like, whoa, okay. <laughs> that's yeah, not good. I mean, that's a really great point because I, I, I realized I, I, I had this epiphany maybe, I don't know, a year ago where I said, you know, life is about progression. You grow up, you change, you adapt, you, you learn more things about the world as you get older. But in my faith heritage, I was just taught at age 18, I had all the answers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's I'm 18 right. years old and here it is. I have all the right, the right beliefs. I know everything there is to know about the Bible and I'm all good. <laughs> no, I know. No, there, there are, there are millions of people out there who, you know, what they, when they, before 18, what they thought at 14, they think is still completely true. 
uh, yeah. just about their religion, though, not about other things. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, why absolutely. Is that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I do think that is part of why I even started the work. And that's why we call ourselves the New Evangelicals, mm-hmm. because a lot of us, especially with when, when 2016 happened and the COVID response, a lot of us in our own faith tradition went, something is way wrong here. I, I don't understand you know, all this stuff. And then of course that leads you to pull all these threads. I mean, I grew up Calvinist. So mm. I started thinking, oh, I don't know, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. God is predestining some people for a heaven, some people for hell. And, but God is good and just, how did that, that makes no, no sense to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I have found that, that through people like yourselves and others who have done the, the work as they explain the Bible, I've actually found it more beautiful than ever. Mm. Uh, even though, it, like you said, it is, it's, it's scary, I think, in the beginning, because you have this view of the Bible that it's inerrant, that it's perfect, and that you can't really be questioned. And once you start picking it apart, it kind of, it kind of, you know, pricks at you a little bit. But as you get over that, it, it really becomes a, to be a, a beautiful book. That's also very complicated. <laughs> well, I agree with all of that. And, you know, I, I, you know, my students have real, so I teach in the South, you know, I teach at the University of North Carolina and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's part of the Bible Belt. And my students tend to have grown up in conser- conservative Christian households. Yeah. And they're very, you know, they, they get disturbed when they find out about things like discrepancies in the Gospels. Right. But eventually they begin to realize that if you don't treat the four Gospels, just as an example, if you don't treat the four Gospels as one book, but as four books, and you realize that Matthew's saying something very different from John, not just kind of slightly emphasizing something different, he's actually got something very different. It's the discrepancies that open up what they're, they're all saying. Yes. You see, oh, wow, Matthew's saying that, and John is saying that. And even as a as a Christian, uh, for years, I thought this is, this is just, it's enlightening. It just yeah. shows you what each one's trying to say. Instead of pretending it's all one story, you realize you have very different theological points of view. And uh, it means that you can't just kind of sit back and just accept everything, which is easier. But it does mean that you, can, you realize the, full, the richness of the New Testament and the, the vibrancy of it rather than it just being this stable thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So let's get into your newest book. You you have this book coming out, Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end. Um, why a book on Revelation? I'm so curious. I mean, I know you're you're a prolific writer. You've written a lot of books. I, I read Heaven and Hell, which for me was a, a just so helpful to understand the history of how we how we developed you know those two belief systems. Why a book on Revelation? What was the thought process for you? Um, part of it is that the Book of Revelation is. It's probably the least read book of the New Testament, one of the least, of, of its size, definitely, and the most misunderstood. Um, <laughs> so sure. the, the, the people who do read it tend to be uh, evangelicals, conservative evangelicals usually, and, and fundamentalists who read it. And they read it as a, uh, to figure out the blueprint for our future. They want to see the roadmap of what's happening, and the revelation tells us what's going to happen in our future. Historical scholars have long known that's not the way to read revelation. And the reason that everybody's always wrong about predicting the end (laughs) from, you know, when I was in in college at Moody Bible Institute, Hal Lindsey was the big thing, of course, and and everything was the late great planet Earth. I mean, that was our, that was the 28th book of the Bible for us. (laughs) This is is really, and so, but you know, Every all of these prophecy predictors, and there's still tons of them today. They all, even though now they tend to say what's soon rather than it's you know next Thursday, but 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 they all have been shown wrong, and it's not because they've gotten a detail wrong or they missed a particular verse or something. It's because it's the wrong way to read the Book of Revelation. Um, 
And so when I was, when I turned into more of a kind of a liberal progressive thinker, I came to think that Revelation was not describing our, our future in any kind of detail, but that it's more of a metaphorical book meant to, to, meant to bring hope to people who are suffering. Uh, and I, I taught that for years and years and years until about five or six years ago um, when, I, when I actually started studying it diligently and I realized, you know, I don't even think this is a book of hope. This is a very vicious and violent book. And it's amazing to me that scholars, many scholars, uh, including, you know, was, was Christian scholars on their, on, across the spectrum will say that it's not a violent book. <laughs> I'm thinking, which, which which version are you reading exactly? <laughs> <laughs> Probably the Passion Translation or something, you know. <laughs> you know, things like the word hope never occurs in the book of Revelation. Hmm. And the term love of God never occurs in the book of Revelation. Jesus, God, hmm. God does not said to love anybody in Revelation. Hmm. <laughs> he is said to throw everybody into a lake of burning sulfur. And, yeah. um, and so I, so part of, part of my book was trying to show that um, the idea that it's futuristic, that it's predicting our future, trying to show why that's wrong, not just saying it's wrong, but actually trying to show why it has to be wrong. And then dealing with this idea that it's actually a book of hope and trying to show why that's also problematic. Uh, and, then trying to lay out what what the what the problems are not just the problems of these interpretations as interpretations but i try to show how these for example how futuristic interpretations have done real harm in the world i mean real harm in the world uh, not yeah. just kind of messing with people's heads but actually serious harm uh and i'm and thinking then, about harold camping was another one who, well harold who, uh, camping i mean harold camping you know i deal with him in the book and he 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 was one of the few who finally realized he had botched it um, mm. You know, he had spent a, a career uh, picking dates uh, from yes. you know, starting with 1994 and then ending up, you know, and he ended up at the very end, of course, they went all out. It, it, his, his, his group, his family radio, invested $100 million into uh, billboard ads and things like that yeah. about predicting which day. And mm. um, finally... Finally, when it didn't happen for about, you know, his 10th predict, precise prediction that he was certain was going to happen, didn't happen. He finally gave up and said he had sinned and that he was wrong. And then, uh, and he, he died two years later. <laughs> what do you think? I'm just asking you, I'm, I'm asking you just to spitball this, but what do you think? How do people get there? How do they get to be so militant and in, in, in certain of these predictions of the end of the world? Um, I, I, I always kind of baffles me, especially after you're wrong, like maybe the third or fourth time, you know, but when it takes like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, people are selling their stuff. What do you think is going on there, you know, to, to have someone so convinced that like, yes, I have figured out the end of the world? Um, it's hard to it's hard to know how what's going on in the heads of people like like Hal Lindsey, for example, who, you know, in 1970 published the great, late great planet Earth thing is going to be at the end by by 1988, and it, it didn't happen, and and he's still going today. I mean, decades later, he's still saying the signs are now being fulfilled, wow. and um, he of course has made many millions of dollars off of it, so that's that's nice. <laughs> and the end didn't come, and he <laughs> must be okay. nice. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the kind of regular regular folk, you know, people who are reading these things, um, I think people, um, even people who have it, have it good in life, realize that this is a, you know, it's really, it's a hard world. And they really want the hope that God is soon going to do something, that God's on their side, and he's going to reward them. 
And this hope is so fervent that they, they get to something like the book of Revelation and they, they try to read it and they can't make heads or tails of it. I mean, it's like, what? Ah, right. What? And so then yeah. somebody tells them what it means. They, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, my God, I had no idea. And once they latch onto that, they're just hooked. Uh, yeah. They're hooked. You mentioned in the book that that um, Revelation is one out of many pieces of, of apocalyptic uh, literature. Can you kind of break down what that kind of literature is and, 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 how, and the evidence that we have of it in other books in the ancient world? Yeah, this is something that historical scholars have long pointed to that uh, regular folk wouldn't know, that when we read Revelation, when you read it for the first time, it just blows your mind or you can't even <laughs> yeah. finish it because it's like it's right. too bizarre. And so it's almost like you took a bad acid trip. It's just crazy. You, it, it's, yeah. And you're wondering what was John taking? And it's like, yeah. oh, my God, what is this? Exactly. And then but then um, so um, historical. So we read it and it seems like a one of a time, one of a kind thing. I mean, when I first started reading it, when I was a, you know, a late teenager. I just thought, you know, this has to be inspired by God because nobody could come up with something like this. This is wow. This is wow. <laughs> and so um, right. scholars, though, have known that, in fact, this is a kind of literature that was being written in antiquity in Jewish and Christian sources. The Apocalypse of John is the only one like this that we read, but it'd be kind of like if there were no science fiction novels in the world and one landed on your doorstep, you'd read it and say, oh my God, I have no idea what this is. And so it's that kind of thing. So so um, there were Jewish apocalypses that started being written about 200 years before Jesus. And uh, for about 400 year period, there were Jewish apocalypses written. And then there were apocalypses by Christians as well. Um, these apocalypses are, make up a literary genre. It's like a, you know, you have science fiction novels as a genre, or short stories as a genre, or a limerick poem as a genre. They have kind of certain kind of literary characteristics that the author knows what these characteristics are, and they're using these characteristics, and the reader knows what they are, and so they understand how this is going to play out. And that's how it works with the apocalypse. Um, those who understand how the apocalypse genre works uh, can make sense of the book of Revelation. And so part of what I do in my book is try to explain how you have all of these books by people who are prophets, who have these wild visions with these bizarre images of the heavenly realms, and they see what's going to happen in the future, and all of these disasters are hitting, and the powers of evil are in control, but then in the end, God intervenes and destroys them all and sets up a good kingdom. You know, you have this this kind of thing going on in all of these in these various apocalypses, which have a lot of differences among them. You know, there are different kinds of apocalypses. But right. but once you know that, then you have some kind of purchase on the book of Revelation where you realize I've got to understand this in the way it was written, because the person writing this had something in mind when he was using this genre. And so if I if I take it out of that context and pre pretend it's a standalone, I'm going to completely misunderstand it. Uh, and so scholars try to put it into that kind of literary context as well as its own historical context. When you say that there are different types of, of apocalypses, what what do you mean? Because in, in my head, and I'm I'm not the academic here, but in my head, I'm like, you know, it, it's it's weird symbolism. But like, what do you, are there different genres of of, of apocalyptic literature? Like, how, how how does that work? Um, there are certain things that are common among almost all of them, but there okay. are some striking differences. Like one, one kind of apocalypse entails uh, entirely a, a prophet who goes up to the heavenly realm and sees what's happening up in heaven and that makes it helps make sense of what's happening on earth. So the earth is kind of a dim reflection of what's happening in the ultimate reality up in heaven. 
And so you have apocalypses that are heavenly journeys. You have other mm-hmm. apocalypses where the prophet doesn't actually go up to heaven, but they're shown by a set of visions uh, the, that are symbolic, the course of future events uh, on earth. And so for in the Old Testament, there's only one apocalypse in the Old straight up apocalypse, and that's in the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12. And it's more that historical sketch thing where he sees bizarre beasts and weird animals and things that are happening. And, you know, Daniel 7, four beasts come out of the sea, one after the other. What always happens in these apocalypses, by the way, is that there's, there's always an angel standing by to explain it to you. Hmm. And the key to understanding all of this is to pay attention to what the angel says and to look for the clues because the clues are always there. And in Daniel, the, the angel says, well, these beasts actually represent four kingdoms and the fourth kingdom has these horns. And one of these horns is this ruler. And so he explains it all to you. So like, if you know anything about the historical context in which this thing was written, it, it just unpacks itself basically. But, People, of course, don't know about the historical context, so they can't do that unless somebody tells them. Uh, and the right. same thing with Revelation. The thing about Revelation, though, is that it, it is one of these rev- one of these apocalypses that combines those two things. It's both a heavenly journey and a sequence of future events. Mm. And so, because uh, John shoots up into heaven in chapter four, and then he sees a whole bunch of things in heaven, but there are also sequential of things are going to happen on earth. And is there like? So is is the point of apocalyptic literature to try and make sense out of suffering? Is is that kind of the reason why this genre was developed? What what's the history of that? It's almost always to explain why the people of God are suffering. Mm. Um, the reason this the reason the genre um, came into existence is because of things happening about two hundred years before Jesus in Israel. Um, Israel for centuries, of course, had had bad experiences i mean they were they were the northern half of the kingdom was completely destroyed by the assyrians in the eighth century and the babylonians wiped out jerusalem and the temple in the sixth century and then the persians took over and after the persians came the greeks and then the egyptians and then the syrians and then the romans it's like at every point little israel just getting destroyed i mean it's in a very bad place of the planet because it's between egypt and and mesopotamia and so anybody who wants to control that area has to take out egypt has to take out israel and so they're constantly being wiped out and the prophets of the old testament try to explain it and um here's another thing you know a lot of conservative christians don't understand that the prophets are not predicting what's going to happen in the distant future just Mm. read them they're talking about things happening in their own day the assyrians are going to wipe you out babylon's coming after you and you you better repent or babylon's going to get you and so they're they're predicting what's going to happen in their own immediate future Mm. um And they always have this view that the reason Israel suffers, the reason people, the people of God suffer is because they've sinned and God is punishing them for their sin. And Mm. if they would just turn back to God, it would be okay. So what ends up happening is about 200 years before Jesus, some of these Jewish thinkers started saying, look, we have these foreign powers that are, that are torturing and killing us because we're keeping God's law. We're not breaking it. We're getting circumcised. We're keeping kosher. We're observing the Sabbath. And they're making that illegal. Why would God torture us for doing what he tells us to do? And that's when they started developing the idea that there are evil powers in the world, evil forces like the devil and demons and principalities and powers and all sorts of things that are making life miserable. 
And that's mm. where these apocalypses come from. They're explaining what these evil powers are and how God's ultimately sovereign, even though it doesn't look like it, and he's going to take care of it pretty soon. In the book, you mentioned that Revelation almost didn't make it in the final canon. Is that true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's the story behind that? I, I, I need to know. Yeah, so um, a lot of people today ask, why is that in there exactly? Not, I mean, you, you know, not evangelicals and fundamentalists usually, but, but I get that question a lot. And the thing that people find bothersome today is, is often the violence of it, um, yeah. just how bloody and gory it is. Uh, and they find that problematic. That actually wasn't the problem in early Christianity. Uh, for the first several centuries uh, after Revelation was written, it was much debated. Um, the The biblical canon itself had not been finalized. They hadn't made final decisions or anything, but Revelation was always being debated. And in mm -hmm. some parts of Christianity, they really liked it. In other parts, they really didn't like it. And there were two, there were two major issues. One was who wrote this thing? Because mm -hmm. it claims to be written by John, somebody named John, but he doesn't claim to be the author of the Gospel of John. Uh, and even ancient scholars, we have an ancient scholar from the third century, a guy named Dionysius, who wrote a treatise who showed that whoever wrote Revelation did not write the Gospel of John. <laughs> he showed on, on wow. linguistic grounds, by language analysis, and his, his arguments still hold up. I mean, he's absolutely wow. right. They're not the same author. Um, so that there were debates about who wrote the thing and it was somebody named John, but John was a common name and you know, right. which John is it? Uh, and the other thing in the early church, which will strike, I think people as a little bit surprising and unexpected is that since the Bible, since, since revelation celebrates what's going to happen at the end, when God destroys everything opposed to him, everybody who's opposed to him, and then gives the followers of Jesus, this city of gold with gates of pearl, uh, this is an enormous city. It's 1,500 miles cube, and it's all gold. And, it's, and, the, and they're going to have this eternal life in this resplendent glory. And church fathers in the fourth, third and fourth centuries thought that was really offensive. Um, they thought it was offensive because this was the period where Christians were start, Christian leaders were start, starting to emphasize the need for ascetic living, where you mm. don't indulge your pleasures, you don't mm. cave into your bodily desires, so you don't eat good food, you don't drink, you don't drink good wine, you don't have sex, and you know you're supposed to the the material and physical pleasures are not what what God is all about. But the book of Revelation to them seemed to be all about looking forward to these material and physical pleasures. They mm. said that can't be part of the Bible. Um, wow. And so wow. it didn't. The, the reason it got in, by the way, is unrelated to any of that. <laughs> okay. So how did it get in? Okay. So I, I deal with this a bit in, in my book as well. Uh, so uh, in the fourth century, the big controversies uh, were focused on the identi identity of Christ. Mm. Um, Everybody agreed, just about everybody agreed, that Christ in some sense was God. Um, so they agreed on that. But they couldn't agree on how that works, yeah. you know, how Christ can be God if God is God, but there's only one God. And is, <laughs> right. it, is it that like that Christ is like this subordinate divinity that at some point in eternity past, God begot a son, and then the son created the world. But he's, he's not on the level of God, the Father, and he's, he's a subordinate divinity. Uh, or is it that Christ was fully equal with God and always had existed and there was, they're equal, they're not identical 
They're not identical, but they're equal. Um, that view ended up winning out. That that became the standard view, even though a lot of people don't hold it. <laughs> they don't know it's the standard view, but it is the standard right. view. And the Book of Revelation was useful for that argument uh, that it, they're equal. And the, the, it's because of a couple of verses in Revelation. Early on, God identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. So he's the beginning and the end, the beginning of the the Greek alphabet alpha, the end of the Greek alphabet omega. God is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And in the book of Revelation, Christ identifies himself as the alpha and the omega. Mm. Well, if they're both the alpha and the omega, then they're equal. And so that was used. uh, That was use. It was useful for the theological debates. And so the side that took that side then said, yes, this is scripture. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits. Not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. It's always so interesting to to have someone of your caliber explain this stuff because uh, so many of us were just kind of taught like, oh, the Bible. I mean, people don't say this, but they kind of treat it like, oh, it was just kind of beamed down, you know, from heaven. And uh, it's always been this way and nothing was ever debated. And and, and the church has always had these views on these things. And then someone like yourself comes along and is like, well, it's kind of more complicated than that. And there were debates and this debate, you know, this debate ended up winning out. But if this debate didn't win out. We, we, we all believe this instead. It's just very fascinating to realize how complicated the Christian tradition is and how none of this happens in the vacuum. Like, like there's cultural things happening at specific times that shape how we see the faith today. Well, that's right. And, you know, the, that kind of thing about the formation of the canon, that's not, that's not just a, you know, a view of some crazy liberal scholar who teaches it in North Carolina. I mean, this is just, it is factual. You just have to, all you have to do is to read the ancient arguments. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we have them. We have a, you know, we have, we have fourth century church. We have a fourth century church father. I wrote my dissertation on him. Actually, his name is Didymus the Blind. <laughs> he was a fourth century church father who said, second Peter, is a forgery. <laughs> and he was like a prominent, he taught Jerome. I mean, he was a very famous guy. And it's like, wow. you know, so you have stuff and all you have, but people don't know this material. But you asked earlier, why do I teach this? Because people don't know this stuff. And they really, yeah. they ought to, whatever they believe, they at least ought to know the history of it. Well, and I think, I think again, uh, you know, my faith tradition was very big on inerrancy and, and treating, you know, the, the Protestant Bible anyway, you know, as, as the authoritative word of God and, and all this stuff. And it's like, listen, I, I'm not saying people can't hold the, those views if they don't want to, or if, if they, if they want to, but we have to at least be honest about, about the complicated and very messy history of the Bible that we have today that had a lot of hands involved for you know a long many 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 years hundreds of years to get where we are today it's not as as black and white as god said it that settles it it's just it's just not that simple it's not that simple and it's it's the kind of thing where you know you 
I don't think that this kind of historical analysis where we're talking about how the canon was formed, how whether Revelation made it in or not, or yeah. things like that, I don't think that kind of thing ever should lead somebody to stop being a Christian. Right. It, 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 but it, you know, it may mean that you need to rethink some of your theological views. Um, yeah. You know, history cannot show whether Jesus died for your sins. It can't. I mean, how can history show that? If you say Jesus died for your sins, you're making a theological statement that isn't susceptible to a historical analysis. I mean, you can't. Right. You can you can show he died, and you can say something about the crucifixion, but what it actually means and what God accomplished by it. I mean, historians don't have access to God any more than anyone else does. They have access to the past. And the past has Jesus crucified. Why he got crucified? Well, that's a theological belief. And so that's that's why you have really, really intelligent people who know a lot, who know who know everything I know about the Bible, but they're still believers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was watching your uh, your debate uh, with William Lane Craig a long time ago, and, yeah. and that was kind of, you know, your big point was like historians can't make, you know, God, these God claims can't be made through history that they have to be made through theological claims, you know. Yeah. And I, I will be honest, I, I try and listen to debates and be as, as honest as possible. I, and I think William Lane Craig is a very nice human being who, you know, super respectable, but I, I did not find his his argument, especially the whole formula, that math formula thing, I did not find it convincing. <laughs> No, I tried like, though, you know. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, these people who use Bayes' theorem—this is called Bayes' theorem that he's Bayes' theorem that he was using. It's a very funny thing because, okay, we're not getting into technicalities, but it's the statistical calculation that yeah. people have, like Craig, have used to sh- to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. The yeah. other, the other person who uses this extensively uh, for the historical Jesus is Richard Carrier who uses Bayes' theorem to prove that Jesus never existed. <laughs> wow. So, okay, you got the same math. <laughs> right. Radically different outcomes. Radically. So what, what does that tell us? <laughs> well, I do think that's kind of where I'm at with, with my own faith. It's like I've come to realize that there's just no camcorder footage of Jesus rising from the dead. Like, I I, I just, I, I can't prove it. I just can't, right? But I... I'm kind of okay with that. And that belief helps me have hope for like a better world. I don't know. And that's kind of, that just kind yeah. of, it keeps it. That's how I make sense of this, right? Like yeah. I, I fully understand that claiming that someone rose again from the dead is an audacious claim. <laughs> like it's, it's a wild claim. Um, And I realized too, that we just don't even, even, you know, you say this all the time, but we don't have the original manuscripts. Like we just don't have enough evidence on, on like a scientific objective level to prove one way or the other that, that Jesus rose again from the dead. However, I think at least for me, that belief that, that there is hope and that there is life after death is a very beautiful belief that really keeps me going uh, as I hope to make the world better around me because of that belief. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, if I were a Christian, that would be exactly my view as well. And it, you know, it was my view for many years. And I think that, um, that it's, you know, it's perfectly acceptable. I mean, history can't prove the resurrection. It can't disprove the resurrection. The, the right. point is history can't, can't deal with it. It's, a, you right. know, and so, so you don't believe it because of historical proof. I, I think one of the big problems, it's, it's an irony. This is an irony that I don't think many people have thought about. I don't even know many scholars have thought about this, but um, this irony in evangelical Christianity is that it has um, latched onto the concept of objective truth. 
that you can that there are things that you can prove objectively. That idea people don't know the history of philosophical thought, but this idea of objective truth comes out of the Enlightenment. Yes. The Enlightenment yes. developed views of objective truth in part to show the problems of Christianity. But now Christians have latched on to objective truth that you can prove things objectively. And, you know, William Lane Craig tries to do that, and many other apologists try to do that. But, but the thing is, it means that, that the, the Christ, these Christians doing that are more children of the Enlightenment totally. than the liberal atheists out there. I mean, because they, in, in universities, the idea, you know, that you can get objective truth like this, yeah, it's a problematic concept. In well, I, I tell people often, I say, listen, there's a reason why we're not debating a flat earth in academia, right? Because we can objectively prove that the earth is indeed not flat. Yeah. But there's a reason we have thousands of theology departments, thousands of them, all arguing about everything. Yeah. Because it's not the same thing, you know, where yeah. theology and science and, and those things are not the same ways of viewing or thinking about the world. It doesn't mean that one is less than the other. I think you need both in a lot of ways. But to try and pretend that you can just take the scientific method and, you know, and, and input a few things and boom, the resurrection is, is objectively true. It, it it just kind of falls apart for me. And, and I thought that for a long time, even yeah. before I kind of yeah. deconstructed my faith, you know? Yeah, no, I did too. I, I, I thought, I thought all of that when I was still a Christian that you can't prove this. And it, you know, it's like you, there, the things you can't prove lots of things. You can't prove that a particular poem of Tennyson is better than some other poem of Tennyson. How do you prove that objectively? You know, there, there right, are right. things that, and I'm, I'm not saying that's like, that I'm saying that's an, an analogy. I'm not saying, you know, that it's the same thing as with theology, but there are, there are, you know, um, math is not going to build a house. Right. <laughs> you, you, I mean, there, there are things math can't do. <laughs> there are things yeah. science can't do. There's things history can't do. And it's important to recognize what's what. And right. theology is not science and it's, you know, it's not architecture and it's not, I mean, so it's theology, theology. No, I agree. So you mentioned that that in in this book, you know, about Revelation, you talk a lot about how this this should not be looked as um as, as a book that's trying to predict the future. But you mentioned also a couple minutes ago that that Revelation talks a lot about the end, a lot about like the end of the world, and a lot about you know heaven and all, or you yeah. know a, a city made, made made out of gold. So why why wouldn't you want to take Revelation as you know something in the yeah. future if the end of the world hasn't happened yet? Well, I think Revelation, I think the book of Revelation is predicting what's going to happen. But John is predicting what's going to happen in his own day. Um, and mm. one of the things I try to do in the book is show that uh, when he talks about this, uh, this figure, the beast from the sea, that everybody, you know, everybody calls it the Antichrist, which is fair enough. But it's, the word Antichrist does not occur in the book of Revelation, but so it's the Antichrist figure whose number right. is 666, you know, right. and you have, uh, or you have the whore of Babylon uh, in the wilderness in chapter 17, who's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And she's sitting on this beast that has seven heads and 10 horns. And you have these symbols. If you actually pay attention to what the, uh, the hints that are given, especially by the angel, it is crystal clear uh, who John's talking about. He's talking mm -hmm. about the city of Rome and its emperor. Um, so I try to demonstrate this in the book. This is not a novel claim. Again, this isn't another kind of crazy radical claim. This is this is a view that even uh, you know Christian scholars, not fundamentalists or conservative, well, a lot, some conservative evangelicals will admit this. But but basically, this is the standard line, and for really good reason. I mean, you can you can pretty much demonstrate he's talking about Rome. 
He mm. thinks God is going to destroy the Roman world and give give the power that Rome has and give all the wealth that Christian has that that Rome has to the Christians. Uh, and so he is talking about the end, uh, and but he's talking about the end of the Roman world, the the, the end of the Roman Empire that was mm. uh, that was. Uh, persecuting Christians sometimes, and that was um, that was really exploiting all the earth that he knew about. Hmm. Okay, that's definitely helpful. So, so you mentioned that that you had one view of Revelation for a lot of years. This idea of making of of, of hope, I guess, out of suffering, something like that. But as you started studying it very, you know, um, intentionally. You realize that actually, no, this book is is just violent. Break that down for me. Like, what was the shift for you? And so, what do you think Revelation is, is trying to communicate now, based on your studies? So, um, I, you know, I had taught it for years and years. Uh, I've been I've been teaching in universities since 1984. So I've been teaching wow. this stuff for a long time, and I taught it that way for a long time. It's it's how I learned it, being trained at a fairly uh, it was kind of middle liberal um, Protestant Princeton Theological Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary. And this is this is how I learned about it there, and I just I kind of clung on to that. And I I had a kind of an apocalyptic view myself of the world, mm-hmm. and not in a literal sense, but even as a liberal Christian, I thought you know God is going to make it all right, and that truth will prevail, and that yeah. the Christian message is that evil does not have the last word, and death does not have the last word. That was. You know that that was the position I clung on to for many years as a as yeah. a liberal Christian, and I read Revelation that way. So about four or five years ago, I decided really to attack the Book of Revelation seriously. You know, to read read it deeply in the Greek, to read what scholars have been saying about it for the last hundred years, um, and uh, just digging really deep. And the more and the more I read, I found that you have you did have this kind of marginal. Not marginal. You've got a you've got a minority group among scholars who were saying, "This is an awful book. Um, mm. This is this is there. This book is is explicitly about the wrath of God and His Lamb, the wrath of God in Christ." And they're right. The book itself says that's what the book is about. It's about God's mm. wrath. It's not about His love. And once I started thinking, you know, they might be right about that. I started then reading it and realized. There is so much here that, about wrath. And, you know, the, the, as I said, the word, words like hope and the love of God and mercy. And, you know, these words do not show up at all in Revelation. The words that show up are vengeance, revenge, wrath, blood. Um, and the person who releases the catastrophes on earth, which are uh, starvation, and uh, war, and murder, and uh, and drought, and earthquake, and uh, horrible things, including torture. Uh, there's one section where animals are released that torture everybody on earth who's, who doesn't, uh, who's not a Christian for five months and won't let them die. They have to suffer for five months, and they won't, won't can't even commit suicide to get out of it. Uh, Yikes. All of these are explicitly said in the book of Revelation to be sent by Christ. Christ is the one who sends these disasters on the earth. Um, 
and I start and I start some of the passages are just beyond belief when you realize what he's actually saying and just look at it closely. People read over these things and don't pay much attention. Oh, here's another disaster. You know, it's kind of, we've seen too many disaster movies. It doesn't really hit as much. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but you read this. And so I just got to a point where I realized that this is a big problem. And the other thing I saw was that I'd never realized much before is that a lot of Christians are also going to be tormented and thrown into the lake of fire. Whoa! Really? What? What? Huh? What? what? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. I'm listening. <laughs> oh well, I'll tell you one one thing early on in the book, in chapter two, uh, Jesus is uh, is dictating letters to uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and in the letter to the church of Thyatira, he talks about a woman leader in the church uh, that he names. Uh, Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel is not a good name from the Old Testament. She's this wicked queen. <laughs> and so he calls this woman leader, teacher, this teacher in this church, uh, in the church, she's a Christian leader, uh, Jezebel. And it's because um, he says she's encouraging people to eat uh, food offered to idols and to engage in fornication. Um, we don't know what he's talking about exactly. Uh, people to eat meat in the ancient world uh, usually had to eat meat that had been offered to a, to a pagan god. And this is a problem mm. that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. Right. But And we don't know what this woman was saying, but she might, you know, on a positive side, she might have been saying, look, you're invited over to a friend's house or your neighbor, your family or whatever, and, and they serve some meat, just eat it. You know, just don't worry about it. Just eat the meat. And that way you might have a chance to tell them about Christ. Or, you know, I mean, right. she might be saying something like that. But whatever she's saying, he thinks it's hideous. And Christ, in this letter, Christ is dictating this letter. Christ says that as a punishment for her teaching this, he is going to throw her on a bed. Now, some translations say sick bed or hospital bed. That's not the word. Hmm. Jesus is going to throw her on a bed, and she doesn't get sick. What happens is men come and have sex with her. And it's not clear if they're raping her or if she is welcoming them. Hmm. Uh, and Christ says that he is going to uh, make the he's going to punish these men who are having sex with her and he's going to kill her babies. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, Revelation two, verse twenty two. Um, and so people say, look, it's just symbolism. It doesn't mean he's going around, you know, making people have sex and killing their babies. It's symbolism. And I right. reply, yes, that's right. It is symbolism. What kind of symbolism is this? Is this the kind of symbolism that you want to teach people? That what Christ really wants to do is to destroy his enemy and to kill babies and to right. torture people? You know, if you want to talk about God taking over the world, you know, suppose you want to say, look, the world's evil, it's corrupt. Uh, God's going to take it over. Why do you need this kind of symbolism where you've got Christ destroying armies where blood flows up to the level of a bridle for 200 miles? What, why can't you have Christ send some missionaries down here who have, have a really nice rhetorical message and, and they convert people and people realize, oh, man, we've been doing the wrong things. And they all, they all they turn to God and the world becomes a great kingdom on earth. Why not that kind of imagery? You know, Billy Graham imagery instead of imagery like you know, <laughs> Genghis Khan or something. Well, I mean, how much, I mean, is, is is this type of language kind of par for the course in the ancient world? Like, is this is this kind of common, a common way of like expressing, you know, your frustration or anger uh, of, of mm -hmm. uh, some, an empire who's oppressing you? Is, is it normal or is this even for, for its time pretty extreme? Um, it's one form of normal. And it's a different form of normal from what you find Jesus teaching in the gospel. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you that. It seems like a very different Jesus all of a sudden. It's a different Jesus. Of course, John thought that he was a, a Christian. He was a very ardent Christian, um, just as there are all sorts of people today who are horrible human beings with horrible views who call themselves Christian. Yeah, so he, know, he certainly thought that he was a Christian. But uh, at the end of my book, I compare what John has to say about things like violence and dominance and uh, passion for wealth in contrast to what Jesus himself said. And um, John thought John considered himself an upright Christian, but I'm not sure Jesus would consider him one of his followers. Jesus did not teach that you're supposed to dominate others, that you're supposed to destroy others. You're supposed to rule others with a rule of iron. Jesus taught you're supposed to serve others. You're supposed to give your life for others. You're not supposed to kill them. And no. this, the God, so I, you know, I'm, I came to a point where I no longer thought that the apocalypse of John, uh, agreed with the gospel of jesus well i mean based and by the way uh friends i did find that verse i'm going to read it out out (laughs) so that way you know i'm not lying it says behold i will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds and i will kill her her children with death and all the churches shall know that i am he which searcheth searcheth the reins and hearts and i will give unto every one of you according to your works so there you go it's king james version i will kill them um, kill them with death yes indeed it's right the children. There. i was gonna say it, it okay i'm not sure if you know the answer to this question um do you think that that whoever wrote the book of revelation um had like the uh, some kind of idea of jesus of jesus's teachings and it was just like ah Forget that. Um, I'm just going to kind of talk about this Jesus that I want. Or do you think that, does that make sense? Like, yeah, I'm trying yeah, to figure yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, obviously, I don't think that maybe the Gospels written down were around when John was. Maybe, maybe they were. But did John have any version of Jesus in his head before he wrote this? I think he, yeah, I think he certainly did. Uh, and I think that he had, um, I think, you know, anybody who is a Christian in the first century has heard stories about Jesus whether yeah. they've read texts or they've just heard stories. And they've heard stories about his teachings, uh, his miracles, his death and his resurrection. Uh, John, the, this author, definitely knows about Jesus being uh, crucified. He talks about, he refers to him as the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb uh, who's been slaughtered. Uh, and he definitely knows that he's been raised from the dead. Uh, one way to look at this is that there are authors of the New Testament who are far more um, taken with the um with the resurrection than they are with the death <laughs> uh, and for them resurrection is the show of power and that jesus died as an innocent victim but now that he's done that he's coming back for blood uh, yeah and that's and that's i think that's what's going on here is that yes jesus showed us how we can die as an innocent victim but really it's about getting revenge uh and i don't think that's what jesus had in mind at all well, I think what concerns me is that I hear that that um, you know logic with people who are Christian nationalists. That's all, all yeah. a big point of like you know their their perspective is that hey, you know, yeah, he's coming back, uh, and we have to do whatever we can to kind of you know uh, dominate and to rule over everyone else. So clearly, you know, theology and how we interpret uh, these books matter because you can come away thinking either oh, uh, Jesus wants me to you know dominate my enemies and to slaughter everyone who isn't a Christian. Um, or you can think, well, something doesn't really gel here, right? There seems to be a, a massive contradiction of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus of love your enemies and, uh, you know, slaughter everyone. And uh, this woman might might potentially be, be being raped, uh, you know, Jesus. Uh, so I'm 
I'm kind of curious for you, maybe just like just like your perspective on this. So, I know a lot of Christians, and, my, and myself included, you know, we 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 take the Bible in some way authoritative or, or as as some kind of sacred text that we we see as as a guide to understanding God and Jesus and and a very complicated you know history. How how do you recommend? people who who hold the Bible to be sacred, what do we do with Revelation? Because as you're talking about, I'm like, oh, this makes you really uncomfortable, frankly. Uh, and this seems like it's a really, not really a great book to base my life on, <laughs> based on, on what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recommend it. Uh, so I, what I wrote, basing your life on it. So what I would say is that Christians already um, use their Bible in a selective way. Yeah. And I think it's useful to just acknowledge that most people don't follow the rules of Leviticus. Yeah. You know, people don't think that you really should stone your child to death if he disobeys you, you know, or, you know, you, so we, have, and even, you know, it's okay to rig, wear garments made out of two kinds of fabric, you know, that's okay. And there, so you, 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 you look at the Bible uh, and you, you, you try to figure out what, what is contextually oriented uh, that no longer applies in your context. Uh, and it's just not that the Old Testament doesn't work anymore, the New Testament does. It isn't that simple at all. Totally. But, but totally. what you do is you, you figure out what contextually makes sense, but then you also render some judgment. Um, these are various points of view, and it's not the same point of view. And if you have different points of view, which ones are you going to affirm? Um, some in liberal circles, they used to, when I was in seminary, they used to talk about having a canon within the canon. Mm. Um, and this is kind of, it kind of goes back to Martin Luther with the Reformation, where he thought that there were certain, certain authors and certain books that really encapsulated what, um, what the Christian faith was supposed to be all about. And other books didn't quite get there. Or, you know, he put Martin Luther in his Bible translation, put the book of Revelation in an appendix. Um, wow. He said that uh, he said that the the book begins with John saying that blessed is he who keeps all the things writing in, written in this book. And Luther replied, "That's nice, but nobody knows what is written in this book. Nobody can understand it." <laughs> right, right, right. So only was, we knew. It was one of the books in his appendix, and so he so that idea that you you know you figure out what are you going to focus on. Are yeah. you going to focus on loving your neighbor, taking care of those in need, helping those who are poor, clothing the those who need clothing, housing the homeless, or are you going to focus on destroying your enemy because they disagree with you about what to believe? Right. Which, which is it? And I just I'm more of a kind of a sheep and goats guy myself. I'm more <laughs> like you know you're gonna you know you help those in need. That's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want you to go out and torture people. Or, yeah. or, you know, or kill them or dominate them or take over and make them do what you want them to do. It's just that isn't his way. Yeah, but I, I think that what makes the Christian tradition so complicated and messy is that there were Christians who had that view, right? Who, who yeah. thought, hey, like, I'm thinking about even like the doctrine of discovery, right? The, the, the Pope saying, hey, God's giving you the land. Like whoever, whoever you have to wipe out or dominate, yep. it, it's all God ordained. Yep. And so I think that's important for the audience because I think I grew up just being taught like, oh, Christianity is always good, right, and true. Yep. But really it's what we do with Christianity. It's what we do with the Bible um, that really I think dictates the fruit of that, right? Yep. And unfortunately, I think if you if you look at the faith seriously, even in our own lifetime, you can see that there are people who think that the faith is a great weapon for oppression or it's a tool of liberation, you yep. know? And there's always been those those kinds of, of streams, I think, for a long time. 
I, I completely agree with that. And I think you just, you need to decide, you know, what, how, how you're going to li- live your life. You know, do you, which Jesus do you want to follow? Yeah. Do you want to follow the Jesus who, uh, who the Jesus of the Beatitudes or the Jesus of Revelation? And yeah. you can't really follow both because they're, they're at odds. But one thing I will say though, is that at, as a Christian, if I were a Christian, what I would take away from Revelation is the, the positive side. We, there's not a lot of positives in, Re, in Revelation, in my view now. But, but on the positive side, the broad picture, the broad apocalyptic picture is worth embracing, which is that evil looks like it's triumphant and that we're not going to be able to stop it. But ultimately, God is sovereign. And ultimately, good will will triumph. It's not going to triumph the way John says it's going to do, with everybody being thrown alive into a lake of burning sulfur. I don't, I don't think that. But, but it, you know, in the end, God is sovereign, yeah. and we have to trust that it, and we have to work for it. We have to work for it, but also we have to realize that it's it's going to it's going to happen. That in fact, good's going to good's going to win out. I love that. Well, on that note, friends, the book is Armageddon, what the Bible really says about the end. Bart, like I said, you've helped me in my own faith journey. I actually, it's so funny. The other day, this I, I don't know how it happened, but I, I ended up rewatching your debate with James White from like 10 years ago. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness. And so I just want to say personally, thank you for your writings and for your work. It's helped me a ton um, j- just to take my own faith more seriously. And I know a lot of people in the audience uh, ha- have read your content and watched your videos and were all very grateful for the work that you do so thank you well thank you and thanks for having me this has been really great good where can folks find you are you online at all do you have a youtube channel uh several things i've got a youtube channel uh, i've also i've got a um i've got a website just called barterman.com where i i do remote courses and oh, uh cool. lectures uh that people can look at but the and the other things i have a blog uh, this blog is where, can I just take a minute to say something about this blog? Cause it's, Go ahead. I, uh, I've been doing it for over 10 years now, almost 11 years now. Uh, I post five times a week, uh, wow. uh, between 1200, 1400 words. I answer every question people send me all, everything having to do new Testament Christianity, early Christianity. There's a small membership fee and I don't get any of it. Uh, I give all the money to charity, especially charities oh. dealing with hunger and homelessness. Uh, last year we raised uh, uh, five hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Uh, from this thing, and so I'm trying to grow it. And so, if people are interested in this kind of thing, if they check out my blog. Um, and, um, and if people can't afford it, I'll give them a membership. But if they can't afford it, uh, we don't use a penny for overhead. We have no overhead uh, wow. from these fees. And so, uh, uh, so look at it and see if there people people should look at it, see if they're interested. I'll put a link in the show notes for that because that's, that, that's really awesome. That's so, Bart, again, thank you. Keep in touch. Hopefully, we'll okay. do this again. Okay, it sounds great. Thanks. I love Mondays. And yes, I'm being 100% serious. Why? It's because I'm a Dunkin' Rewards member. And Mondays are better with Dunkin' Rewards. Every Monday this month, Rewards members get a free medium hot or iced coffee with any purchase. Not a member? Join on the Dunkin' app and never miss a deal like this. Dunkin' Rewards. Save them, stack them, use them how you want. America runs on Dunkin'. Limit one per member per Monday. Additional charges and terms may apply. Participation may vary. Limited time offer.